0: Hi Grace Chapel, my name is Katherine. I'm the worship leader at East Lex and also for GC at Night. Today we're going to continue on uh, looking at the internet to see what people are asking about God. Question number one. Let's see. Okay. Does the Bible mention unicorns? Hmm. I don't think it explicitly mentions unicorns. However, Unicorns are pretty cool. I know this because I have two four-year-old girls, and we do a lot of unicorn activities at our house. It's pretty popular. Okay, question number two. See here. Does the Bible list the seven deadly sins? Well, the Bible certainly does talk about sin, and uh, it does list some, but you know, sin is common to mankind, and that's why we have Jesus. So read the Bible, and see what i say about that. Next question, does the Bible talk about dogs going to heaven? Uh, I don't think it specifically talks about that. However, there is a super rad film, I think 1989 called All Dogs Go to Heaven. Great movie, great cartoon. Uh, maybe a little less theological, but you know, worth a watch. Let's see the next question. It says, does the Bible have a table of contents? Well, my Bible has a table of contents and your Bible has a table of contents. I don't think it always had a table of contents. I think we had a group of people get together super long time ago, kind of figure out what order they want to place things in, but it's not how it was originally written. Uh, and let's do the last question. Are we ready? Does the Bible really matter? Yes, it does. But why? Brian, can you help us out?
1: Well, we'll get to those questions in just a moment, but before we do, I want to share a little bit of good news with you. It actually kind of comes in two parts. The first has to do with our Christmas Eve offering. If you remember, we collected an offering that we wanted to to give to support the humanitarian efforts uh, on our southern border. And I'm happy to announce that the collection from all of our campuses over Christmas Eve was $84,000, which is remarkable, really terrific. So, that's money that was given over and above everyone's regular giving from many of you and our Christmas guests. That right now, 100%, is going to make a difference in the lives of people, providing uh, legal counsel, immigration help, uh, medical care, support for families, child care, spiritual counsel, all those things. So, thank you to everyone for what a, a great, great offering. Along with that, at the very same time, we were able to finish our calendar year 2019 also in the black with a little bit to spare. So that also is good news and was made possible because of so many of you who give faithfully throughout the year, and some were able to give something special at the end of the calendar year. So that means we are right on track with our budget, and it sets us up well nicely for the second half of the year. So whoever you are, whenever you gave, whatever you gave, however you gave in the plate or online... Every gift matters, every person matters, every prayer matters, and so thanks for being part of a, of a really good story of what we sense God doing here at Grace, so we want to give him and you thanks for that, but let's come to our questions uh, for the week and some of the questions we heard there on that video, try to set the record straight here. Uh, first question is, uh, does the Bible mention unicorns? No, except for the King James Version of the Bible, which for some reason used that word to describe a wild ox. So, don't know why. <laughs> does the Bible mention the seven deadly sins? Not specifically that way, but all seven are there, along with a few others, and they're pretty much all deadly. So, uh, does the Bible talk about dogs going to heaven? I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. All right, so. And does the Bible have a table of contents? Yes, and you probably need it to find Habakkuk. Okay, so it comes in handy. So those questions are pretty easy to put to rest, but this last one's going to take a little more time. Does the Bible really matter? So we're in week two of our Googling God series as we try to address some of the most commonly asked questions about God on the internet or in other venues as well. We began last week by asking, is God real? Next week, we'll ask, if God is real, Why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? So that's a big topic. But today, we'd like to focus on, does the Bible really matter? Now, that may not initially sound like specifically a God question, but clearly the Bible is a primary source of ideas and information for many people about God. Sure you know, the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. It's the best-seller every year, and has been the best-seller every year since books were first printed in 1455, and the first book off the printing press was, of course, the Bible. So the Bible has been translated into almost 3,000 languages, which means 95% of the world's population has the Bible in their own language, which is pretty remarkable. And since we're talking about that, we should just take a moment And celebrate the fact that one of those Bible translations has been accomplished by our own mission partners, Jeff and Judy Heath, who work in the nation of Chad and for the past 20 some years have been working along with their team to translate the Bible from the original Hebrew and Greek into Chadian Arabic. So that people group could read the language, the Bible, in their own heart language. And after 20-some years, their work is done. It's at the printing press and soon to be released. So can we just celebrate? Good work, Jeff and Judy. That's great. <laughs> so best-selling book of all time, translated in nearly 3,000 languages, and... The Bible is, for at least three of the world's great religions, uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, clearly described as a sacred book. And that's over half the world's population. So it's pretty tough to talk about God without talking about the Bible. But it's pretty tough to talk about the Bible without asking some hard questions about its believability, about its authenticity. Can we really take it seriously? That's what we're asking today. Let me be clear what we're not asking today. We're not asking, is the Bible inerrant or infallible or authoritative? Or even, is the Bible the word of God, however you may understand that? Those are really important questions. But they really are insider questions. They're questions that theologians and Bible readers and church members wrestle with as we try to understand this book called the Bible. We've talked about them before. We'll talk about them again. Today, we're asking a more simple question, a question that almost anybody with questions about God is going to answer. Does the Bible matter when I think about God? Can I take the Bible seriously? It's a valid question. The Bible was written a long time ago in other languages, in other cultures, in other parts of the world. We don't have any of the original manuscripts for any part of the Bible. The Bible tells some pretty outrageous stories. A man being swallowed by a fish and spit up back on the shore. People rising from the dead. The Bible makes some pretty radical demands. Sell all you have and give to the poor. And isn't the Bible full of contradictions? And what about all the other sacred writings of other religions? So does the Bible matter? Can we take it seriously as a source of truth about God? Now, like every question in this series, you're going to have to make the final answer and decide for yourself. But what I'd like to offer today is four reasons why the Bible matters, four reasons you can take the Bible seriously. We'll spend a little more time on the first one and hit the others more quickly, but they're all important. And then we'll finish with a story about one person's experience with the Bible. So, first reason for taking the Bible seriously is that it's reliable. In other words, it's trustworthy, it's historically credible. Now, skeptics will very quickly point out, as we've already said, that we don't have any of the original manuscripts for any books of the Bible. And they're right. All we have are copies and fragments of copies of words that were handed down orally and then manually over many, many centuries. So how do we know that the words we're reading are actually the words that were originally written? It's a valid question. But we have to remember that we don't have the original manuscripts for any ancient historical document. The materials of the time, papyrus, vellum, the good news is that they were all biodegradable. (laughs) The bad news is that they biodegraded. And they just didn't last. So all we have of any works of philosophy, history, religion from the ancient world, all we have are copies or fragments of copies of those original scripts. But having said that, we have far more manuscript evidence for the Bible than we do for any other work of antiquity. For instance, when it comes to the, the, the works, the writings of Julius Caesar historically, we have 10 copies or fragments of copies. When it comes to uh, the, uh, Aristotle's work, we have 49 copies or fragments of Aristotle's writings. Homer's Iliad, we have 643 copies or fragments. So 10, 49, 643. We have 24,000 copies or fragments of copies of the New Testament documents. And by laying all those fragments and copies out side by side, by comparing and mixing and matching, scholars are able to determine with remarkable reliability what those original words were. And where there are disputed fragments, sentences and sayings, they really are inconsequential to the story and the message of the Bible. But how about the accuracy of those copies, Uh, those who are making it down all those years. Let's remember that these, these scribes believed they'd been entrusted with a sacred task, that they were handling the very words of God. And so they developed these elaborate systems for proofreading their text. They would count not just words and syllables, but letters and match them up one against the other. So if we can't take the Bible seriously, historically, then we should stop assigning the Iliad and the Odyssey in high school English classes, which is probably okay with most high school students. (laughs) How about all those names and dates and events there in the Bible? There's a lot of them. Some of those stories, some of those numbers, they're, they're hard to accept, they're hard to believe. The interesting thing is that nearly every notable name, place, and event we find in the scripture has been confirmed by other historical documents and traditions or by archaeological discoveries. Just a couple of for instances. For a long time, critics and skeptics argued that there's no way Moses could be responsible for the first five books of the Bible. Because in his time period, 1400 or so B.C., writing hadn't, hadn't even been invented yet. But then archaeologists discovered something called the, the, the Code of Hammurabi etched in a stone from 300 years earlier than the time of Moses. And so it's entirely possible that Moses could have been responsible for those books. Another example. For a long time, critics argued that the biblical account of the, of the fall of Jericho couldn't be relied upon because it said the walls fell outward. They argued that cities were always built so that the walls would fall inward. But in 1901, when Jericho was discovered and excavated, it was discovered that the walls had indeed fell outward and people, the, the Israelites, the Hebrews, were able to walk in just as the Bible had recorded it. And so those are a few examples of some of the historical reliability around these Old Testament stories. But the centerpiece of the Bible, of course, is the story of Jesus, is the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right there at the center of Scripture. The evidence strongly suggests that these four accounts were thoroughly researched and constructed based upon firsthand eyewitness accounts of people who were there at the life and times of Jesus. One of those writers, a man named Luke, was a physician and a historian. And listen to how he describes his process of putting the book together. In Luke chapter 1, he writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. It's clear Luke took his responsibility very seriously and wanted to give a reliable account. And we have not one, not two, not three, but four of these accounts, each one written from a different perspective, reflecting a different personality and in a different style, and yet all of them remarkably consistent in their reporting and their conclusions about the life and teaching of Jesus. Most scholars will agree that most, if not all, of the New Testament documents were completed within the first century, and most of them within 15 to 30 years after the, the life and times of Jesus. That means they were written down during a period of time in which the people who... Lived through those experiences, who saw them and heard those things, were still alive and could either corroborate or refute those things. Now, 15 years is not a long time. Imagine someone calling into WEEI, Boston Sports Radio, for those of you who aren't aware, and <laughs> beginning to talk about remember how back in 2004, Kurt Schilling and his Red Sox lost to the Yankees in Game 6 of the ALCS? You don't remember that, right? I mean, some of us may wish it had happened that way, but it didn't. I mean, the whole city was there. People saw it happen. They haven't forgotten that he won that game. In the same way, if these events that we're reading about in the Scriptures, they happened while people were still around. If, if Lazarus hadn't risen from the dead, if 5,000 people had gone home hungry from a day by the, by, beside the Sea of Galilee, if Simon of Cyrene had not carried the cross of Jesus, if, if the tomb still had a body in it, people would have spoken up. They would have said so. It was in their lifetimes. Now, by contrast, other Gospels, so-called Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, some of them made famous by the Da Vinci Code of some years ago, these Gospels are written 100 or 200 years later And bear none of these marks of authenticity or eyewitness testimony at all. And as for those contradictions, turns out there really aren't that many after all. Most of them can either be explained easily by simply being different reports of a similar event. For instance, one gospel writer says there were two angels at the tomb, another talks about one angel at the tomb. Well, they're not necessarily contradicting each other, just reporting it in two different ways. Maybe one of them spoke, and that's what's being reported there. So you have those kinds of things, and then you have those, um, let's let's call them paradoxical truths that seem to be contradicting each other. For instance, one proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. Another proverb says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. Well, both can be true. It depends upon which fool you're talking to, right? (laughs) Either one can work. <laughs> so these, the few contradictions we still can't quite resolve, they're, they're really inconsequential to the message and the story and the record of the scripture. So those are just a few examples. We could go on at great length uh, to talk about these kinds of things. But whatever else you may think about the Bible, understand that it is a historically reliable account of people's thoughts and experiences about God. It's reliable. A second reason the Bible matters is that it's beautiful. The Bible contains some of the finest and most enduring words that have ever been read or written. I mean, Consider this. The Bible contains 66 different books written by over 40 authors in three different languages over a period of 1500 years in a variety of genres history poetry law prophecy didactic sections and yet it tells one story from beginning to end one story a story of of heroism and courage and redemption and Triumph over tragedy and good over evil and love conquering all. It tells one story. Listen to just, just a few of the perhaps most familiar selections of scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall lack no good thing. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. If I speak in the tongue of men and angels and have not love, I am nothing. Those words, and words like them, are among the most familiar and loved and most powerful words that are ever spoken, heard, and reflected upon in in any language. They they bring hope and comfort and strength to people in, in all the circumstances of life. The scripture is beautiful. Now, to be sure, there are some tedious sections, long lists of laws in Leviticus, genealogies in the New Testament. And there are some difficult troubling sections about judgment and violence and slavery. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to go after some of those very difficult sections. In fact, we're going to do a whole sermon in two weeks in which you're asking, answering the question, is God angry, sexist, and racist? And we'll try to wrestle with some of those troubling images of God that sometimes come to our mind and maybe even are found in Scripture. So we'll get to them. But, but even these difficult sections, these tedious sections, when you understand them as part of a larger whole, when you figure out how they fit in the unfolding revelation of God's person and work, it, it all hangs together in a story that's hopeful and redemptive and beautiful. So one thing we should point out when we talk about reading the Bible, taking the Bible seriously... We're not talking about reading the Bible literally. People often ask, should I read the Bible literally? No! Unless you want to gouge out your right eye and throw it away the next time you look covetously at something. (laughs) I mean, that's what Jesus said to do. Those are the literal words. But we know it's not what he meant. He was using a figure of speech, hyperbole. And so we understand, we, we don't read the Bible literally, we read the Bible naturally. We read it the way it was meant to be read, according to the particular genre of literature we're looking at. And so if we're reading history, we expect it to be accurate. If we're reading poetry, we expect it to be imaginative. If we're reading something didactic, something instructional, we expect it to be clear. If we're reading a parable, we expect it to be made up. And if we're reading apocalyptic literature like Revelation, We expect to be confused, and we are. (laughs) The point is, we use common sense when we read the Scripture. We take into account the different types of genre, and we take into account the historical cultural settings to which these words were written. For instance, Paul writes in one of his letters that women should not braid their hair or wear jewelry. Now, if we take that literally, half of you should go home right about now. (laughs) We understand Paul's speaking to a very particular circumstance, to a historically cultural moment in time. At the same time, we understand he's laying down a timeless principle about inner beauty, about real beauty, and, and about modesty. And so we read the Bible naturally, not literally. Final thought on this beauty idea. I have been... Studying and teaching and preaching the Bible my whole life. I just preached my 35th Christmas Eve message. 35 times. Same text, same story, same characters. P.S., everyone knows how the story ends. (laughs) It's no surprise there. And yet every year I find something new. Something fresh, something surprising, intriguing, challenging, unsettling, comforting, hopeful, wonderful every single year. It just never gets old, it never gets stale, it never never gets predictable. So the Bible matters because it's beautiful. So it's reliable, it's beautiful. Thirdly, the Bible matters because it's relevant. It's relevant. It speaks to every aspect of human experience. Even though it was written many thousands of years ago in a variety of different cultures, it has something to say to us today about the world in which we live and about the way we live in that world. Listen to what one Bible writer says about the Bible itself. He writes, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now those words were written about 3,000 years ago by someone who began life as a shepherd from nowhere and ended his life as one of the most famous kings in human history, David. He experienced the very best and the very worst of life and humankind. And he says that these words guided him gave him comfort and hope and help through all those experiences of life. And many people today would say the very same thing. The Bible's relevant. Listen to what one contemporary writer says about the Bible. It's about God and greed and grace, about life, lust, laughter, and loneliness. It's about birth, beginnings, and betrayal, about siblings, squabbles, and sex, about power and prayer and prison and passion, And that's only Genesis. (laughs) All right? I mean, it's all there. It is all there. I've been doing this a long time. People say to me, how do you come up with something to say every week? I've got great material. You should see the stuff that's in here. Someone kind of slid up next to me a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, I have a question about last Sunday's message. Where did you hide the video camera in my house? What they're asking, of course, is how did you know what was going on in my house, in my life? And that happens frequently. My answer is always, the Bible knows. The Bible knows it's all right here. Someone told me recently about a a colleague from work who had very suddenly lost a family member. So this friend uh, sent a sympathy card and just wrote out one one verse of scripture. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Now this person who's not really a church goer or a Bible reader as far as I know, wrote back and said how meaningful and comforting those words were. The Bible is not just reliable and beautiful, it is relevant. It speaks to all the experiences of life in every age of human history. And fourthly, the Bible matters because it's inspired and that's kind of a loaded word because there are a variety of ways to understand that word inspired. And it is one of those insider words that church people like to kind of wrangle with a little bit. But however you end up defining inspired, I think you'll agree, it applies to the Bible. The English word inspired comes from the Latin word which means to breathe or blow into brings to mind the image of God breathing life into that dust he had formed into the shape of a human being. So when we say that something is inspired, we're saying it's filled with something. It's filled with energy or with hope or with joy or with courage. And I think we've been discovering this morning that the Bible is that kind of a book. It just fills us with things when we read it. But understand, I'm not just saying that the Bible is inspiring. I'm saying the Bible is inspired. That this book itself is filled with energy, power, the the, the very power, perhaps, of God. The Greek word for inspired shows up in a verse of the Bible in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in right living, so that the servant of God may be equipped for every good work. The idea here is that as people remembered and wrote down the words and works that they had experienced in their interactions with God as they wrote them down, that somehow... God filled their words with with his power, with his presence, with his energy. We're not saying that God dictated the words to them. We're not saying they became scribal androids who wrote down what they were programmed to write. It's very clear. They retained their, their unique personality, their perspective, their personal style of writing. And yet somehow we believe that something supernatural came alongside them so that what they wrote became somehow larger. It had an outsized impact and influence. I mean, that's what we mean when we say something is inspired. We're saying it it seems like it's beyond normal explanation, like like it comes from something beyond us, someone or something out there. We talk about the, the music of a Mozart or a Bono. We talk about the poetry of an Emily Dickinson or or Langston Hughes, the painting of Rembrandt, the courage of Harriet Tubman, the leadership of Mahatma Gandhi or or Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King. It's not just their gifting, but their impact. Seems like there's something remarkable happening there. When we talk about the Bible being inspired, we're saying that much and even more than that. Now it's interesting, by the way, all the names I just mentioned, they were all steeped in the words of the Bible. I'm not saying they were all Christian people, but they were all steeped in the ideas and the teaching of Scripture. When we say the Bible is inspired, we're simply saying it is unlike any other book that has ever been written. For, for reliability, for, for its beauty, for its relevance, for its impact, on people, and on the world. It's just hard to explain how all that happens. Now, I know there are other sacred writings and other religious traditions, that some of which are beautiful and reliable and relevant for sure. But when you take all these things together, they, they just can't compare to the Scripture. For instance, many sacred writings are the work of one person, Uh, The Quran, uh, the the Book of Mormon, one person wrote it in one time period. Other sacred works, like the the works of of the Hindu faith, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, written over many, many centuries by a variety of people, but it's pretty much all one genre. There are no historical names and dates that we can ground it in terms of its accuracy and reliability. So again, there's certainly truth and beauty and goodness in all those writings and they're worth reading but they just can't compare to the Bible. So however you take that word inspired, understand that the Bible is unlike any other book that's been written. So I know I promised you four reasons the Bible matters. There's actually a fifth. I didn't want to scare you off, and (laughs) we can't really spend a lot of time on it, but I don't want to finish without pointing it out. A fifth reason for taking the Bible seriously is that it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. We spoke earlier about the unity of the Bible. How, even though it's written over a long period of time in many cultures by many authors, it tells one story. Well, the story it tells is the story of Jesus, of God entering into human experience in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who came to rescue us from ourselves and restore the world to its intended splendor. That story. From the beginning to end, the Bible points to Jesus. In the opening chapters of Genesis, we read about one born of a woman who one day will conquer evil. In the closing chapters of Revelation, we read about a lamb seated on a throne ruling over a new heaven and a new earth. At the very center, we have the Gospels, these four uh, records of the life and teaching of Jesus, four separate but consistent accounts of the most beautiful life that's ever been lived. Listen to what one of those writers says about about Jesus. The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us. The Word became flesh. Isn't that interesting? As if to say, as beautiful and relevant and reliable and impactful as all these words are, words are not enough to reveal who God is and what God is all about. For that kind of thing, you need a living word one who embodies all that can be known and understood by us about God and that person is Jesus the most compelling figure in human history the Bible points to him from beginning to end so that alone makes the Bible worth reading it points to Jesus so once again it's been a very theological and academic kind of a conversation we've been having so let me finish with a story story of one person's experience with the Bible The movie 1917 is just coming out, and there seems to be kind of a fascination with World War II and that particular conflict and time period. And it brought to my mind a story I had really nearly forgotten about and hadn't told in a long, long time, but I rummaged through my file and found it. It's the story of a man named Emile Calle. Calle was a young man in France when the war broke out, and he found himself on the front lines of that horrific battle. And I'll let him tell his story in his own words. Through my college days in France, I was an agnostic and graduated without ever having seen a Bible. The education I received proved to be of little help in the trenches. When your buddy dies standing in front of you, a bullet in his chest. Was there a meaning to it all? The inadequacy of my views on the human predicament overwhelmed me. One night, a bullet found me, too, and after a nine-month stay in the hospital, I was discharged and resumed my graduate work. I remembered how during those long night watches, a few yards from the enemy lines, as I looked at swollen bodies dangling in the barbed wires, I had strangely longed for, it sounds odd to say it, a book that would understand me. But I knew of no such book. So now, as I went on reading from my studies, I would file passages that spoke to my condition and then carefully copy them into a leather-bound book I would carry with me at all times. The day came when I put the finishing touches to the book that would understand me, that would help me through life's happenings and lead me from fear and anguish to relief and joy. A beautiful sunny day it was. I went out, sat down under a tree, and opened my precious anthology. As I went on reading, however, a growing disappointment came over me. Instead of speaking to my condition, the various passages merely reminded me of their context and my labor over their selection. Suddenly I knew that the whole undertaking would not work simply because it was of my own making. In a dejected mood, I put the little book back in my pocket. At that very moment, my wife, who knew nothing of the project I had been working on, appeared at the garden gate with something in her hand. She'd been out for a walk with the baby on a hot afternoon and had taken shelter from the sun in an old building, which turned out to be a church. She bumped into the minister who gave her a Bible in French. Now, I should confess at this point, I had made the subject of religion absolutely taboo in our home. So she was about to apologize for even telling me the story, but I interrupted her. A Bible, you say? Show me. I'd never seen one before. I literally grabbed the book and rushed to my study with it. I opened it, and chanced upon the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I read and read and read, now out loud with an indescribable warmth surging within. I could not find words to express my awe and wonder. And all of a sudden the realization dawned upon me. This was the book that would understand me. I continued to read deep into the night, mostly from the Gospels. And as I did, the one of whom they spoke became alive to me as if his pages were animated by the presence of a living God. To this God I prayed that night, and the God who answered was the same God of whom it was spoken in the book. Kaye went on to become a dearly loved and highly regarded Bible scholar, seminary professor, and for the rest of his life began every day by reading and reflecting on this book that had found him, understood him, and formed him into the man he became. And that's why the Bible matters. That's why we can take it seriously. Because whatever else you may think about the Bible, you can't deny the fact that it is unlike any other book in its reliability, its beauty, its relevance, and its inspiration. It will find you. It will understand you. It will form you. And it will point you to Jesus if you give it a chance. Let's pray. Lord, I think we're all just a little bit humbled and awestruck by the data we've considered today and by the stories we've heard. This book that is such a common feature in so many of our lives here in America, in a country, in a church like ours, most of us have more copies than we know what to do with. And yet sitting on our shelves, in our car, in our pocket, on our phone, are words that, can, that have changed the world. Words that have changed many of our lives and words that have the potential to save everything and everyone. What a remarkable thing. Pray, Lord, that for those of us who believe in this book, that you would renew our love for it and our commitment to it. For those who are struggling with it, wondering if they can trust it, pray that they would take the time to to take a look, to read, and perhaps encounter you there. And we pray, Lord, for those who perhaps have never yet had a chance to see it or read it or hear it, that you would continue to bless the efforts of those who are bringing this good word around the world. Thank you for being a God who wants to be known, who has revealed himself to us in the world around us, in the longings of our own hearts, in these remarkable words, and ultimately in your Son, Jesus Christ. Remind us today, Lord, that our faith is in you. Not, not in this book. Our faith is in the God revealed in this book, the Bible, and made known in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.